0: Debbie Sorensen. Today on New Books in Psychology, I'm talking with Dr. Nancy Siegel about her book, Born Together, Reared Apart, the landmark Minnesota twin study. This book is about the Minnesota study of twins reared apart, which is a 20-year-long project that started in 1979. By studying twins reared apart, Siegel and other researchers involved in the project were able to make an important contribution to the nature versus nurture debate and shift the climate of psychology at the time. Not only that, but the lives of the twins are truly fascinating as case studies. Dr. Siegel's book recently won the prestigious William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association. I was delighted to interview her about her work. Hello, Dr. Siegel. Hello. Thank you for being on New Books in Psychology today. Um, I'd like to start by congratulating you on winning the William James Book Award for your book. That's you. quite an accomplishment. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, so today we're going to be talking about your new book. It's called Born Together, Reared Apart, um, the Landmark Minnesota Twin Study. Um, And to start the interview, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Well, I am a psychology professor at California State University, Fullerton. I teach courses in developmental psychology and twin research. And when I arrived at the university a number of years ago, I established a twin studies center, which I'm very, very proud of. What I do with that center is I support my research and that of my students and colleagues. And we have a number of resources available, a huge library with lots of materials on twins. And I think of myself as sort of an outlet for the community interested people who want information about twins. And there are many, many people who contact me virtually on a daily basis.
0: Wow, a lot of interest,
1: huh? Yeah. Um, now, I grew up in New York City, and I am a fraternal twin myself, which is how I got interested in this whole topic of why we become who we are, because my sister and I are so different. We look different. We behave differently. And I used to wonder as a child, how was it that two children born at exactly the same time with the same parents and the same family experiences can turn turned out so differently. And I was always interested in people. And when I got to school and began to take psychology classes, then I, I realized that genetics does have a pervasive effect on so much of what we do and what we like and who we become. The environment also plays a crucial role, but I was fascinated with how the two intermingle. And that was really what set me on the course for all of this. And I know that Some of my professors along the way would say, well, this is a great interest for now, but you'll probably change your mind. But quite frankly, I I knew I never would. I was hooked on twin research from the time I was a senior in college. And I've just taken it in so many directions. So many new and exciting opportunities have come up. Right now, for example, I'm studying young Chinese twins raised apart and together. Uh, That's a whole sample of people I never thought about. And I'm also studying unusual twins called virtual twins same age, unrelated children raised together who share the environmental connectedness, they're twin-like in nature, but they don't have the genetic link, so they're a nice complement to twin research and to the twins raised apart that I discuss in my book. Great, sounds really interesting.
0: Uh, How about, how did you end up getting involved in the Minnesota study and how did you end up deciding to write this
1: book? Well, when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago, I did a dissertation on cooperation, competition, and altruism within young twin sets. And I was fascinated with the greater cooperation and affiliation that I observed between the identical twins as compared to the fraternal twins. As you know, identicals share all their genes. Fraternal twins share half on average, like ordinary siblings. But it, it occurred to me that maybe this would be interesting to study in Twins Raised Apart, who never met one another, would the identicals, meaning for the first time, have that same rapport as fraternals? And my last year or so in graduate school, Professor Bouchard at the University of Minnesota had just launched the Minnesota Study of Twins Raised Apart, and he was looking for some postdocs. And for me, that was a dream job. I just went right from Chicago to Minneapolis and fell in love with the project. So thrilling to be able to escort these reared apart couples through this extensive week-long assessment of psychological and physical and medical tests to talk with them, to learn what an impact it had on their lives to meet a twin after all those years. Because most of these people were adopted, never knew any biological relatives, and here they meet a twin for the first time. And there had been three previous studies of twins raised apart. One published in 1937 at the University of Chicago. One published in 1962 in Great Britain, and one published in 1965 in Denmark. So these were all twins raised apart studies published in comprehensive volumes. Now, Professor Bouchard and I talked about this, and we tried to do a book in 1985 when the study was only about um, seven years old, but then it occurred to us, particularly to him, that we'd be better off publishing papers and getting our material into the edited scientific literature. And the reason for that is that the study was controversial. When the study began in the late 70s, uh, continuing into the early 80s and 90s, in the early 70s, 60s, the idea of genetics influencing behavior was very, very controversial. People were much more intent upon what good parenting and interventions could do. Not that we're saying they can't, but people who seemed to be ignoring the genetic component, although enough people were interested in it so that we could get the study going. But at any rate, it was important to get the scientific articles out there and to delay the book. Well, as you know how things go, people got interested in publications and the book never got written. So then I left the study in nineteen ninety one. It actually continued till nineteen ninety nine. But I came to California in nineteen ninety one and I established my own research center here. And I found that I loved writing books and I wrote a book in 1999 called Entwined Lives, which was an overview of scientific research on twins, but for the general public. And then I wrote a book called Indivisible by Two in 2005, which is a compendium of essays on fascinating pairs of twins, kind of a, an Oliver Sacks' is The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat book, only mine is on twins, where I present the humanity and the science behind their lives. And then in 2011, I published a book called um, Someone Else's Twin, which is about a pair of Spanish girls who were reared apart from birth only through um, a switched birth case, where one was accidentally taken from the nursery and put in a wrong location, and so an unrelated pair grew up together. So they found each other at 28. I actually went down to the Canary Islands in, in 2009 to study them, and it was absolutely fascinating. But then I wanted to write another book, And my boyfriend actually said to me, has anybody ever written a book on the Minnesota Twin Study? And I thought, you know, there it is. I mean, no one ever Mm -hmm. had. And I knew that was a natural for me. I mean, it was the perfect fit. It it was important to get that book out because, for once, we could get all the papers in one place. See, one of the problems is that because the study was so comprehensive, the material was published in so many different sources, in psych journals in medical journals, in all kinds of journals, so that you rarely knew about the study outside of your own specialty. And in fact, one of the accusations from our critics was that we didn't publish the material, which was a lie. At this point, we've published between 160 and 170 articles. But anyway, I thought it'd be great to really pull this together and into a single volume. And I'm so glad I did because it gave me a chance to revisit all those wonderful moments with the twins with the investigators to go back to Minnesota, redo my walk through the labs, and talk to some of my colleagues. I had just the best time, and Dr. Bouchard gave me full access to all the files. And there were files I discovered that I didn't even know about, letters, correspondence, charts. I mean, it was, I had so much fun doing this. And I really felt like this was an important historical document that, Really needed to be placed into the psychology field, and and it really stands in line with those three previous studies that I mentioned earlier.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, your enthusiasm comes through in the book because there's so much information from these studies that are presented in your book, and it's
1: um, you know really fascinating research. Well, you know, it was it was a little tricky to know exactly how to pitch it because in many ways it's a very scientific book, but it also has a lot of the details about the twins, you know, the human interest, Mm -hmm. the the unusual similarities between the gym twins who both had mixed headache syndromes, both married women Mm -hmm. with the same name, both smoked Salem's and both did their fingernails to the nub. I mean, it has a lot of that stuff in there, too, which I think really makes the data come alive in ways that you just can't get if you're only reading the scientific statistical material. So I really tried to make it available and accessible to everybody. And I think I've done that. And what mm-hmm. I also wanted to capture in the book was just the messiness and the excitement of doing science because it's not a clean process. You you have to study what's there at the time. As I say in the book, we gave interest inventories the same day we did IQ tests. We did personality assessments the day, same day that we did psychiatric interviews. And so the way the book is written is chronological, not topical, because I wanted people to get a sense of what happened in the beginning what happened towards the end? That's why you've got chapters that are all disconnected with different topics. Mm. But, but that's how it was, and I'm really glad I did it that way because it's really a faithful representation of what that study was all about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, I really enjoyed that combination of the statistical and anecdotal information, and then I loved looking at the pictures of all the different twin pairs that you have throughout the book. How similar they look at different ages. It really. Yeah.
1: yeah, that helps. That was your reading. I know the one you're talking about. They're just fantastic. I have a pair of twins who were raised on different sides of the river in Louisiana, (laughs) in New Orleans, and they sent me pictures from when they were infants, nine-year-olds, twenty-three-year-olds, and fifty-year-olds. And when you put them next to each other, I mean, you can just see the similarity in the aging process. Really, quite striking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us, you
0: you kind of mentioned the climate of psychology research. Tell us a little bit about what was going on in psychology at the time that the study
1: started up in the 70s. When the study started up in the late 70s, there was very much an environmental perspective that was pervading psychology. Uh, People kind of gave a nod to the idea of genetic influence, but people were very concerned with the environment, with intervention, and people were worried about discrimination, uh, race differences, sex differences, that sort of thing. So people were really afraid to even get into this area. But at the same time, there was there were advances being made in genetics. There was the discovery that Down syndrome was a result of an extra 23rd chromosome. And there was discovery of the genetic basis of phenylketonuria, which is a metabolic disorder. So there were advances that were being made which linked genes to behavior. At the same time, there were still people who continued along these lines. There was a lot of evidence from animal studies that you could breed mice to be either maze bright or maze dull. And so the genetic perspective was in the minds of a number of people. So by the time the study began in the 70s, the atmosphere was just fluid enough for the study of reared apart twins was possible. And what was so fortunate was that at the University of Minnesota, you had a history of individual differences research, and Bouchard was able to assemble a fantastic team of colleagues right there. He had Irving Gottesman, who had been a grad student there and then a dissertation on personality and twins. He had Alka who was a personality uh, expert. He had David Licken, his colleague in psychophysiology, who was an expert in um, brain waves and things of that sort. And he had psychiatric colleagues, Alka Eckert and Leonard Heston, who also were very interested in this sort of thing, and had done some twin and adoption research at earlier times. The other advantage at the, at the University of Minnesota was that the medical school was right on the campus, which is unusual, that's not the case in most colleges, and so we were able to construct a very comprehensive assessment where we simply had to walk twins around. We didn't have to drive them anywhere, we just walked them from one building to another. So that really contributed a lot to the success of the project. Great
0: and. Um, Could you talk a little bit about why twins are so important in psychology research and especially these twins who are raised apart? What is it that they contribute that's unique?
2: Well,
1: first of all, the classic twin method compares the similarity in identical twins to that of paternal twins. As I mentioned earlier, identical twins share all their genes in common, having split from a single fertilized egg within the first two weeks after conception. Fraternal twins result when a woman releases two eggs at the same time and they're separately fertilized by two different sperms. So they share 50% of their genes on average by descent, just like ordinary siblings do. So it's a lovely natural experiment. If you see greater similarity in identicals relative to fraternals, this demonstrates that genetics plays a role in the formation of that trait. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that when we assign estimates of genetic influence. For example, we say personality has about a 50% genetic effect and intelligence about a 70%. It doesn't mean that for a person, half their personality is genetic and half is environmentally influenced. What it means is that if you look at a population and you see variation from person to person, 50% of the variation is linked to personal- to genetic differences among the people and the other half linked to environmental differences among them. Now, One concern with twins raised apart, of course, is that identical twins in particular might uh, copy for one another, might exchange information that might be relevant to the trait you're measuring. So what you're seeing is an environmental effect when you think you're seeing a genetic one. That has pretty much been put to rest by various statistical techniques, but nevertheless the the criticisms remain. So the twins raised apart come in as a very important addition to this because identical twins raised apart can only be similar to the extent that they share genes. They don't share environments. And you can still look, as we did, to see if there were environmental features that the twins had in common. And if they did, did those common features contribute to their similarity? And we found that for the most part, they did not. See, a lot of people were critics would say, well, twins are raised in similar types of homes or this and that. But if those similarities don't, don't affect the trait in question, And it doesn't mean anything. So we were able to rule out all of that for the most part. The twins raised apart are just a really wonderful and spectacular way of looking at behavior. And fraternal twins are important, too, because they provide an important control. And as I said earlier in the introduction, I'm very fortunate now to have access to a very unique sample of Chinese twins raised apart. And I'm able to study them prospectively from childhood, which is something that we in the Minnesota study couldn't do. We have the twins who met in adulthood. So by studying the twins prospectively as children, I can look to see which developmental events are associated with differences between them. And the reason I have this sample is that because of the one-child policy in China, where rural families are limited to two and urban families to one, and where boys are so highly prized, many, many thousands of baby girls and some twins among them are being abandoned. And they're being adopted by different families. It's all around the world, and so I find them, and uh, mm-hmm. I study them, and they're just really spectacular, and I have a control group of twins, Chinese twins adopted together, which I think is very, very important. Wow. Nice way to get a, a big sample, to have all that, yeah.
0: Now, the first chapter of the book is about the, the gym twins and some of the early days of the twin research. Can you just tell us about how the study got started. Yeah. I, I thought this was really interesting in terms of what you're saying about how it sort of happens not necessarily in this very linear type of fashion. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> well,
1: you know, this, Dr. Bouchard always thought about doing a twin reared apart study but never really thought about how he was going to get the twins. It seemed really difficult to find them. And then in, ni- in 1979 in February a pair of ju- twins in Ohio, Jim, Lewis, Spr- Jim Springer met for the first time at age 39. And the press covered it um, extensively, and the list of similarities uh, their, their similar cars, their, their wives' names, their headache syndromes, their interests, their occupations were just endless of an endless list of similarities. So, Professor Bichard thought, let's bring them to Minnesota and study them as a case. Maybe we'll find a few more and publish it as a compendium. So, the Jim Twins came down to Minnesota, and they were studied, and that attracted a few other pairs. Now, what was so fortunate was that the Jim t- Twins were among our most similar pair. And the media really uh, talked a lot about the similarities. That attracted other pairs to the study. So as soon as Bouchard had 15 pairs under his belt, he decided to go about the study in a more formal way. So what evolved from just a couple of case studies really became a full-fledged scientific project. And I wasn't there when the Jim Twins came but I interviewed a number of the investigators who were, and they said that just the excitement that was in the air and how carefully everybody prepared for this and the surprises and how similar they were. You know, I think that even people in Minnesota who had a genetic perspective in mind were still surprised by all the similarities. And I remember looking at some of the earlier papers where Bouchard figured that some of the social attitudes, like political attitudes, religious attitudes, social values, would probably have family effects but they had a genetic, perspective, a genetic component as well. So there were even surprises, you know, among the Minnesota study people. Uh, it was really amazing. So I came down in 91 when the study had about 40, I'm sorry, I came in 82. That's how I left in 91. I came in 82 when the study had about 45 pairs. And I remember my first pair of twins, Lucky and Diane, and they had the same laugh, the same red hair, the same love of dogs and horses, but the interesting thing about the two of them was that one had orthodontia as a child and the other one hadn't. And one had a foot problem corrected, the other one hadn't. One had an eye problem corrected, the other one hadn't. So you kind of saw two versions of the same thing. And that's why they're a hard concept to convey to people who aren't familiar with twin studies. But I found it all fascinating. So at any rate, that's how we went from just the gym twins to the more formal study.
0: Okay. And how did you end up finding all of these twins who participated in the study? Because that's a pretty rare well, I don't know if it's rare, but it's certainly not common to have, you know, twins separated early on like that. Well,
1: there's some surprises there too. We really did not recruit. We simply did not. Twins simply found us and because the study was in the media to the degree that it was, people saw articles, passed them on to their friends. We were very lucky that a social service worker in London took a great interest in our study, and took it on as a hobby to reunite twins. And he must have sent us 20 to 30 pairs, and that was just fantastic. Now, um, in the book, I have a chart showing how many pairs we studied each year the study was in play. And, of course, that number dwindled as the study took place, and we assumed that we'd simply run out of twins. We were so wrong, because the Internet was not publicly available in those days. Since I have left Minnesota and come to California... Twins have been finding each other, and I've been studying them to the degree that I can and writing about them. The Internet has led to reunions, Facebook uh, connections. You know, you can do searches now. Some of the Chinese twins that I study, the young kids, so the moms may post pictures on adoption websites for parents of adopted Chinese children, and they notice a picture that looks like their child, and that's how the kids meet. It's just amazing. I mean, there's so much so many more resources available now and it just makes me think that had this all been available back then we could have been in business another 20 years. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. You know I thought it was interesting how many cases of mistaken identity led to people find each other that they'd be at a restaurant or something and someone would call them by the wrong name and they'd figure out they were a twin and they didn't even know it.
1: Yes that is truly extraordinary and I think the best example I can give you for that is a pair that was not in the study, but the pair that I studied in the Canary Islands that I write about in my book, Someone Else's Twin, because the unrelated pair was raised together for 28 years, and the single twin was raised apart, of course, as well. And over the years, they both told me that people would call them by their wrong names, people would come up to them at bus stations and hug them, ask them where they were, and they would just have no recollection of being in a certain place at a certain time. Until so finally, one twin walked into a shopping mall, and the sales clerk just said, "You know, hi." And she said, "I don't know you." And the girl walked off in a huff, but came back a few days later to return a T-shirt. And this time, the shop the clerk said, "You've got to meet." And she arranged for a meeting that evening. And that's how that all came about. And you know, one thing I've noticed that's fascinating is that the rear-depart twins, when they meet, identical or fraternal, it's a pretty joyous reunion. After all, you're meeting a twin you're an adoptee, it's an amazing connection. But that's not so for the switched at birth ones. And we only had one switch-at-birth pair in our study. And there have only been about seven or eight documented switched at birth twin pairs out there. And the reason why that's not such a joyous occasion is that parents suddenly discover that they are not raising their children whom they've wanted to raise. And who you are is no longer, or who you think you are is no longer who you are. Your parents are not your parents. Your siblings are not your siblings. You should have been raised someplace else. This was all because of a mistake that some hospital worker made. And so people are shocked. People are resentful. Uh, The twins often get along and usually do get along, and they're usually pretty good friends. But nevertheless, it's a reshaping of everyone's identity. So those are the rare subset of cases that are really quite different from the point of view of the twins' close relationship.
0: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, I would imagine such mixed feelings. You love this person, but you find out it's not who you thought it was all these years. That must be really confusing. <laughs> now, the ones that weren't switched at birth, could you talk a little bit more about what it was like when they would find their twin for the first time? Yeah, well, often twins uh,
1: who knew their adoptees would start a search for biological relatives. And, and a lot of times they delayed this until they were adults or their adopted parents were deceased so they wouldn't hurt someone's feelings. And along the way, they would discover a twin. And that became the most important person to search for. Now, in the case of the mistaken identity people, there were 17 or 18 cases like that. Um, These were people who sometimes knew they were adoptees, sometimes didn't know. But um, the the resemblance was strong enough that they would pursue this. And they were shocked and thrilled, really, to discover a twin because they were adopted and they knew that they were not part of their family. So discover a twin was amazing, but... The idea of being confused all your life with somebody else, you know, we all figure there's a double out there somewhere, so people don't take it seriously. Um, but I can tell you, one of the most amazing stories involved a set of identical triplets, and what happened there was they were all in the New York City area, and one went to a small college in upstate New York for a semester and left. The next semester, one of the other triplets went there, and everyone asked what he was doing back, and when he said he wasn't back, that he wasn't wasn't Eddie, he was he was, um Robbie, Someone who knew the first triplet very well brought them together that evening. And I remember I was in New York City at the time and there was an article in the New York Times saying twins meet for the first time. And I was all excited. But then the picture attracted the attention of the other one, the third triplet. So there he sees wow. two pictures of himself in the newspaper. right? And so the, the dates of birth matched and all that. And so they became triplets. But that's it's really extraordinary. We had another a very poignant story identical twins from scotland who knew they were twins but they were raised apart by different sides of the family and just told you know you don't look for your sister and that's the end of the story so they never did but they were called by the wrong name from time to time and then when they were in their 60s one of them was working at a church she heard a knock at the church door she came out there was nobody there meanwhile her twin had walked around to look at a grave site so she followed her there. They looked at each other, and they immediately recognized that they were twins. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so story was kind of gives me a little tear. But and, and they became wonderful friends. They were they were spinsters; they'd never married, and they lived together and had a wonderful time. Wow. Yeah. And it seems like that happened a lot. That once
0: they made that reconnection, I,
1: I mean, maybe not
0: always, because there were a few in the the book where they were so there were sort of circumstances uh-huh. where there was a bit of a rift. But it sounds like in general they became
1: just great friends and very close. In general, they did. And I wanted to really document that closely because that's really my favorite aspect of twin research. And so I had the identical and paternal twins rate how close they felt to the twin, recalling the first meeting and and then saying how they felt now. But a very important addition to that questionnaire was to ask the twins to rate their closeness to the adopted siblings they were raised with. And that, to me, was the most informative part of the survey because what I found were three things. Identical twins were socially closer than fraternal twins, which mirrors what you see in twins raised together. But the most interesting finding was that both twins, identical and fraternal, felt closer to their new twin than they felt to the person they'd been raised with all their lives. And so what that means is that just sharing space in a family does not guarantee that you're going to be close. I think what draws people together are not just behavioral similarities, but perceptions of behavioral similarities. It's kind of the social glue that draws you together. If you think about all of us when you're traveling and you suddenly meet somebody far from home, even if you don't know them and they're a stranger, you just feel this kinship with them. But the identical twins feel it in virtually all aspects of their life. And I'm also conducting a very interesting study which uses people who look alike but are not related. Hmm. the The lookalikes. And the interesting thing there is How close do they feel? Um, Some people have have been criticizing twin studies because they say that identicals are alike because people treat them alike. Nothing to do with the genes. And I thought you could study personality similarity and social closeness in lookalikes who were unrelated. And I found two interesting things. One is that their personality similarity is virtually zero. (laughs) The second thing is that they don't feel particularly close. I mean, they're kind of curious when they meet, but they don't have the personality similarities that will maintain the relationship so they're a very interesting addition too see I love to study twins of all different kinds mm. the ordinary type and the oddballs I find the yeah. odd ones really really informative
0: yeah very interesting well I, I think I must have someone like that out there because I'm definitely not a twin but sometimes people say I think I've met you before when I'm pretty sure that they haven't so maybe there's maybe I have a lookalike somewhere out there ne- I guess that probably happens to a lot of people yeah, it though does, but you never know yeah. <laughs> so there is so much really interesting information just so many results because of all the measures I mean people came to your lab and were doing you know a week worth of questionnaires and assessments and medical evaluations so you just have tons and tons of data so you know we won't have time today obviously to go through all of it um, but I was wondering if we could just focus on a few of the, the topics um, just in terms of what the results were, what you found out from from all this research. And sure. um, yeah, okay, so what about, let's just start with sort of general personality. Okay. What What did the study
1: teach us about that? Okay, well, we gave several personality questionnaires so that we could see if our results were constant across questionnaires, and they were. So that was good, gave us confidence in the results. And we found that, Personality shows about a 50% genetic influence, things like extroversion, introversion, sociability, aggressivity, traditionalism. And so, again, that means that um, not for a person, but for a population, half the variability is genetically influenced, the other half is environmentally influenced. What was fascinating was that we found that shared environments um, do not really... Contribute to personality similarity. And we knew that because in our personality study, we were able to also look at similarity by looking at twins raised together. So the personality study was really a four group identical, raised apart, and together, and fraternal, raised apart, and together. What we found in personality was that identical twins raised apart are as similar in personality as identical twins raised together. And that is a very counterintuitive finding. But what it tells us is that sharing an environment does not make you similar in personality. Now, that does not mean environments don't have an effect because, after all, the genetic effect is only 50%. But what it means is that the part of the environment that's important for personality is what we call unshared, the unique experiences that we have that we do not share with our family members. That's a very hot topic now in my field. And we found as I said, across a number of different uh, personality uh, questionnaires, giving us confidence in the findings, and also our findings were consistent with what other people were doing, which was also very, very important. Um, we can move on to talk a little bit about intelligence, if you like. Sure. And there, we administered standard IQ tests. We administered a separate mental ability tests, special mental abilities, such, such as perceptual speed, um, Addition and subtraction, mental rotations, memory tasks, and then we also administered some computer, uh, quest, uh, computer tests uh, that were automatically scored and timed. So that um, we had mental ability measures from different different things, and uh, and I actually the the computer one was I think people had as much time as they wanted for those. But anyway, um, what we found was consistent with the previous three studies of intelligence, which was that general ability has about a 70% genetic influence. And that's a very robust finding because we got the same findings in the British study, in the Danish study, and the earlier United States study, given different populations, different test instruments, different investigators, and different points in time. So it's a very robust finding. And we uh, found a somewhat lesser genetic effect on special mental abilities. After all, those are more specific and they are um, less comprehensive, but nevertheless, that's all consistent with what previous people have found. Now, it does not mean that if genes affect the intelligence, that people can't practice and become better, that you can't intervene. Certainly, our findings apply to the normal average population. It does not apply to people at the lower ends of the distribution, people in extremely impoverished situations, or whatever, where environmental intervention would have a huge impact. Right. Ours just apply to the normal, average um, human condition. That's a very important point, uh, I think, to raise. So people, everybody can become smarter, more adept at certain things, but not everybody can be the same. And I think that, you know, when I talk to parents of twins, who really are my favorite people to talk to, parents of fraternal twins, I think, have the best outlook on behavior because they can see the differences in their kids despite trying to provide the same opportunities. The same home is not the same home for kids in a family. It's just if kids gravitate towards different things. I think parents and paternals actually have the the whole story on that. Um, we studied religiosity, and I don't by that mean religious affiliation. What I mean is religious involvement, religious commitment, and religious interests. And many people assumed, as we did, that we would find a largely environmental effect on that. And in fact, previous studies had found that because they mostly focused on children who are under the thumb of their parents and really have to do what parents want. But in this adult population, it turned out that, again, about 50% of religiosity was linked to genetic findings. And I have a great case study that I write about in the book. Debbie and Sharon raised apart from birth. Debbie raised in a very religious Jewish home, and Sharon raised in a very religious Christian home. And both of the twins were affiliated in the religion of their particular household. When they met, they realized that both were very religious, but in different ways. And they both understood their religiosity in ways that their adopted siblings did not. Because their adopted siblings were not as religiously committed as they were. And they also discussed the idea, should we switch to become the same? And they both said, no. And they both said, we respect each of you more for not wanting to switch, because that means you're really fully committed. So they really understood one another in, in ways that were just perfect. And they really um, when they visit each other, they take part in each other's religious activities. So that was a really interesting finding that was replicated in subsequent person, uh, religious questionnaires and things of that sort. And I devote quite a bit of space to that in the book. Um, there are so many things we can talk about, as you say. Um, another one, I talked about twin relationships already. Um, another one is age at first intercourse, uh, sexual orientations, things of that sort. Now, we didn't really have enough pairs to say definitively sexual orientation, genetic influence or not. We had some very suggestive case studies. Um, we found more identical male twins were both were homosexual in our female identical twins. And we're talking about just subsets of pairs here. Um, we had about five or six identical female pairs and none of them were were similar. In other words, if one was gay, the other one was not. Suggesting, and we suggested in our paper that came out in 86, that genetic effects Homosexual, homosexuality were stronger in men than in women. And a lot of critics said, how can you say that with such a small sample? But I must tell you that mm. a large study published two years ago from Sweden found exactly the same thing.
2: Mm.
1: So that, you know, we, we were maybe a little bit ahead of the game in that one. But one thing I know is that the, uh, you can use twins to study virtually anything. Now, another area was job satisfaction. How happy are you with your job? And a lot of people think, well, it's, it's lunch hours, it's vacation times, it's it's how many breaks you can take, but that makes everybody happy. Um, and that has no genetic component to it. But when you talk about things like, does your work give you a sense of satisfaction? Do you feel you can use your talents? Um, are you able to be creative? Those are the kinds of things that show genetic influence, because those are the kinds of things that people value differently on a job.
0: Hmm. Wow. Now, well, that's really interesting. So the, that seems to be a trait that the twins were, the the identical twins were pretty um, similar on.
1: Right. The kinds, yeah. there was some similarity in the jobs they took. Um, mm-hmm. And if they had different jobs, they used to imagine themselves doing what the other one did. But that was much less the case for paternal twins. But mm-hmm. it was interesting mm-hmm. that in terms of job satisfaction, you can kind of divide it into two areas. The extrinsic ones, such as lunch hours, and study breaks, or, or break, and the kind of intrinsic values that are the satisfaction that you get as a person in terms of what you value, are you able to use your creative talents, things of that sort. And that's the part that showed a genetic component, although not as strong, but about 30%, but
2: nevertheless. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of the areas where we found a very high genetic component was brain waves, and that, the degree of similarity in the twins raised apart was as alike as twins raised together up in the 0.9s. Um, you know, 90%, which is really, really high, we found a strong genetic component on height, somewhat less on weight, uh, primarily due to female twins. Females tend to just be um, a little more malleable when it comes to the environment, due to the differences in pregnancy, in, in hormonal distributions, in um, exercise and diet. So, And men are, of course, not affected as much by those things, so that weight seems to have a stronger genetic component in men than women, and that's something that previous investigators have found as well. Mm
0: -hmm. So this is great. This is kind of the statistical end of all the information that you gathered. I wonder now, could you maybe just talk about some of the anecdotal um, examples? There were so many. um, Just fascinating. Yeah,
1: there there are so many. And I'll start with the fireman twins, Mark and Jerry. Um, People will love to read about them in the book. They were raised apart in New Jersey, 30 miles or so, and both of them were volunteer firefighters, which is how they got reunited. What happened was that Jerry went to a volunteer fireman's convention that Mark did not attend. And while the twins were 90 pounds apart at that time, their resemblance was so striking that someone from Mark's firehouse saw Jerry and just asked him a whole lot of questions about where he was born and his birthday and all sorts of things. And he was convinced knowing that Jerry was adopted, they were twins. So he arranged for the two of them to meet, but didn't tell them why. And when Mark met Jerry, he first didn't see the the similarity. When they took their hats off, and so they both had the same bald heads, and the same big noses, and the big glasses, and they were both six foot four, they were absolutely amazed. Um, They have the hairiest chest you ever saw.
2: (laughs) And they're (laughs) exactly the
1: same. They also have this quirky habit of holding their beer glass or a beer can with a pinky finger underneath. And one thing we did notice, were all these little quirks that identicals but not fraternals would share, or maybe just a few fraternals, and one of them is holding the beer can with a pinky finger underneath. Now, why do people do that? You can raise a number of of explanations. Their hands are more comfortable that way. They don't want to spill the beer, it's too precious, Um, you know, lots of things. And you normally wouldn't think of that unless you saw them in twins raised apart because if if a single person held the beer can that way, you'd think, well, who knows, maybe he just does it for some reason or he modeled somebody doing that. But these twins are not copying each other because they both did it independently. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: um, Mm -hmm. it turned out that that aside from being volunteer firefighters, Mark and Jerry had similar occupations. One installed chemical fire suppression systems in hotels. The other one installed um, burglar alarm systems. And they both drove trucks for a while. So they had a lot of similarities. Carrie and Amy, uh, or another pair, who were raised in Vermont, and they actually were fraternal twins raised apart, but the reason I want to mention them is that they were the only pair of fraternal twins we had, and I think the only pair in the world, to ever meet through mistaken identity because they looked so much alike. And what happened was that they lived fairly far apart in, in Vermont until Carrie moved closer to Amy's home, and everyone started calling her Amy. So she finally got a hold of Amy's mother and called up and, and got Amy's address, and they met. And it turns out that they both had this unusual hair condition where their hair doesn't grow. It's sort of a light blonde, brittle, and very, very coarse or very, very coarse in some places, fine in other places, but doesn't grow, and they had very sparse body hair. And that really upped their similarities, their facial uh, configurations, which were similar to begin with. So when they came to the lab, we thought, see, are they similar... Fraternals were different identicals. We didn't know until the blood bank told us that they were, in fact, similar-looking fraternal twins. They were fascinating. And then we also had a pair of twins raised in New Zealand, a male-female pair, who didn't meet until they were 75 years old. And the reason we found them was that we had another pair from California who met when they were 69. And I got that pair into the Guinness Book of Records, thinking they were the world's longest-separated pair. Time went by. I looked at the Guinness Book. and said... The pair from California with the lo- longest separated pair from the U.S., but this pair in New Zealand met at 75. I thought, we have to find them. Bouchard said to me, you'll never find them. I said, I'm going to find them. Two phone calls later, I had them on the phone, and they came to Minneapolis. Since then, would you believe, just about two weeks ago, I found another pair of twins who, met at, who had not met yet and they're 77 years old. Wow. So I'm working on that. I'm working on that. See, my work never stops. But, but these are fascinating cases, and, um, you know, they're so valuable, and I, I just want to study as many as I can.
0: Yeah, so interesting. Well, it sounds like you have plenty of work to do ahead because there's so many pairs out there and so much information still that you're still working on.
1: Yeah, there are pairs out there, I and mean, you know, quite frankly, we don't have a clue as to how many are out there. I will say that because of mistaken identity, identicals will meet more often than fraternals. and in fact, even though more paternals are born in the population, we had probably twice as many as identicals in our in our study as because they had an easier time of meeting. And they were mm-hmm. also a younger group because they met earlier. Paternals have to meet by going through more formal searches. But now with the Internet, you know, who knows, that might change.
0: Mm-hmm. It does make you wonder, though, how many separated twin pairs are out there that, that have no idea. Yep,
1: we'll never know. Yeah. And and how many switch-at-birth ones, too. You see, here's another thing. All the switch-at-birth twins I know about were identical who met mistake mistaken identity. When twins are switched and they're paternal, it's very unlikely they'll ever meet
0: mm. yeah it, it it would take some chain of events for, for people to become aware of that Absolutely. yeah, so you've mentioned that the twin study there is some controversy, especially early on, and there's been some different kinds of criticism but that has come up over the years. Can you tell us about some of the major ones and how you'd like to
1: respond to those? Sure. Um, One of the criticisms is that the twins lived in similar homes and all those environmental effects explain the similarities and the genetics do not. So as we interviewed the twins, we made very careful records of the similar home features to see if they were related to their similarities in observed behaviors, and they were not. We were criticized for... Um, the fact that twins probably conversed with one another when they were in Minneapolis. Now, we were very, very careful to keep the twins as far apart as possible. We did a very um, in-depth explanation of the study with them when they first arrived as part of the informed consent procedure. And we explained that it was important that both of them finish certain protocols uh, without discussing it. If they have questions, ask an assistant. Uh, We had assistants there all the time. We kept them apart as they did questionnaires. Now sometimes one twin would go to a medical appointment the day before the other one would, we asked that they not discuss things until both completed it, and we were convinced that the twins complied with this because they were very serious about the the study. When it came to the IQ test, which of course was the most controversial part of the study, we had been tested at exactly the same time by psychometrists that we studied, that we hired outside the department so there was no bias at all, and the protocols were scored immediately upon completion. we were criticized for going out into the media before papers were published. And what I can say there is that we never sought media attention. Never. Media came to us. And that's how it worked. And we were very, very careful to publish papers prior to discussing them in depth or releasing them to the press prior to publication. There was one case where that did not happen. And what happened there, as I explained in the book, it was our personality paper published in 1988. One of our colleagues inadvertently or intentionally or I don't know what, but did present it to the Public Affairs Office of the University of Minnesota and she sent it to the New York Times. And it got extremely detailed coverage before it was in a scientific journal. So that was a bit of an embarrassment, but it was not something that was planned or intentional on our part in any way.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, We also were accused of attracting only the more similar twins to the study which would mean that we would have similar results. Um, That was overcome by inviting fraternal twins as well. You see, in the earlier three studies, the investigators only studied identicals. So in their screenings, they might have excluded the more different identical twins. We took everybody. We took identicals, same-sex fraternals, and often-sex fraternals. So we got the more similar identicals, but also the more different identicals. And there were some... Uh, identical twins were very similar that so we did not get. Um, as I explained in the book, there was a pair of ladies that we found who were very, very similar. Dr. Bouchard had visited them, um, but they were afraid of flying and they didn't want to travel, so we could never put them in the study. And they were a very similar pair that we simply did not get. So mm-hmm. that was another way around uh, some of the criticisms there. <laughs>
0: So, all in all, if you kind of take this whole body of research, what do you think is the biggest contribution that the study made to the field of psychology as
1: a whole? Yeah, I, I think that there were probably two or three major contributions. For one, I think the study had a major impact on our thinking of human behavior by showing us that genetic influence affects virtually every measured trait to different degrees, but affects every measured trait, so that's one thing. Another impact is that it showed very persuasively that shared environments do not um, create similarities in behaviors. It is the genes that do that. Uh, Now, we also had twins with very different environments in some ways, and that showed up in their differences, so we also showed that environments do matter. Um, That was a big part of the study. None of our correlations were one.
2: And Mm -hmm. I think that
1: another important outcome of this study is that it affected the course of psychological research in so many ways. It influenced other investigators, not just in psychology, but in other fields, to rethink their findings, to bring a twin perspective to their work. You will now find twin research in industrial relations, you will find it in economics, you will find it in political science, you will find it in sociology fields that were previously very environmental in their outlooks, but are now rethinking their findings and reporting genetic findings. So I think that all of that is just, you know, a wonderful way of using this valuable resource.
0: Absolutely. It's such an important contribution to how we understand development. Yes. So you are, it sounds like still working on some twin Studies and some really interesting research with the Chinese twins and some other projects. Um, just wondering, as we're kind of wrapping up here, if you could tell us a little bit about what you see ahead. Do you have any more books coming up, or, or what are some of the findings that you're
1: anticipating coming up coming out? Well, um, in terms of uh, findings coming out, um, I'm working on a paper on transsexualism in twins raised apart that I expect to be out soon. I'm working on a study of decision-making that I expect to be out soon. I'm working on another study of twin relations, what I call twin affinity, that I hope will be out soon, and I'm working on a study that uses uh, Chinese twins adopted together and virtual twins to look at pre-adoption adversity and if there are any genetic effects there. So I'm very excited about all of those. In terms of books, I am ready to write another one, but quite honestly, I don't have the topic yet. And I know from my previous books, one does not go out and search for a topic. A topic lands in your lap, and when it's there, you know it and you love it. And so (laughs) I'm just open to as many things as I can and just waiting patiently for that great opportunity to arrive. (laughs) So if you've any ideas, you can let me know.
0: Oh, okay. Thank you. (laughs) I will. And let us know when, when your next book does come along, you know, whenever the inspiration strikes. I'd be delighted to do that. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Siegel. I really enjoyed talking with you and good luck with all of those interesting projects. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. This is Debbie Sorensen. You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Nancy Siegel about her book, Born Together, Reared Apart, the landmark Minnesota Twin Study, winner of the William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association. Thank you for listening to New Books in Psychology.